This kid's got a left. This kid's got a right. If he hits you once, you're asleep for the night. This kid fights great. He's got speed and endurance. But if you sign to fight him, increase your insurance. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Cheats Movement Podcast on the Family Podcast Network. Jonathan Eig is Muhammad Ali's biographer. Let that sink in. He is an award-winning journalist. He is an award-winning author. Um, but he is Muhammad Ali's biographer. And he is on the Cheats Movement Podcast. Yes, the Muhammad Ali who is probably the most recognizable, most popular athlete of the 20th century, the Muhammad Ali that is a global, global icon uh, for multiple things outside of the ring, the Muhammad Ali that floated like a butterfly and stung like a bee. He is a true, true legend. And Jonathan Ike. Over four years of work, over 600-plus interviews, he talked to everybody he could possibly talk to in Ali World. He did more research than probably any other human being for his award-winning biography, Ali, A Life, and he is on the Cheats Movement podcast. It is a tremendous honor to have Jonathan on the show it's a wonderful conversation. Without ever, no further ado, I am extremely humbled to have Jonathan on the show. Jonathan Ike on the Cheats Movement. All of you chumps are going to bow when I whoop him. I love you. I know you got him. I know you got him, Dick. But the man's in trouble. I'm going to show you how great I am. How many times I got to tell Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Cheats Movement podcast on the Family Podcast Network. If you have not already, please take a minute, visit thefamilypn.com and subscribe. We need your support. Joining me today, I'll tell you, I've been on a really, really fortunate. I know I say this every podcast, but I've been on a streak like no other to be able to talk to some amazing people who have done and are doing amazing things and are really at the top of their field at what they do. And this is no different. We're going to have an amazing conversation, mostly centered around uh, the life of Muhammad Ali. But I have the pleasure on the Cheats Movement to introduce you to John Ike, Jonathan Ike. And he is, I, I would dare to say, the preeminent Muhammad Ali biographer now, and I'm sure there's so many of them, but his book is so in-depth, so wonderful, and it has won a ton of awards. So with all, with no further ado, John, welcome to the Cheats Movement. We're so honored to have you. Oh, thanks, Cheats. It's great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you and always happy to talk about Ali. Like I could go on for days talking about Ali. Well, let's talk about the book because the book is just an amazing, an amazing piece of work. It's uh, like holistic is the best word to say. I mean, it's, it is comprehensive. It is something that I don't think any other author has really taken on the way that you took it on. The book is called A Life, um, but it's not a section 
of Ali's life. It's not a section of one particular fight. There, there have been books I've read. One of the best books I ever read was a book about the fight of the century, just the lead up to one fight, Ali Frazier won. But you've taken a different task and you've taken a, the whole life of, of Muhammad Ali. Let me start by asking, what compelled you? <laughs> what compelled you to take what on? made me think I could do such something so crazy. It was what compelled you to take on such a monumental task with someone that everyone that was alive in a certain period of time, most a lot of folks still alive, had these direct, important, personal stories of Muhammad Ali. It's 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 an amazing task. How did it come to you to say, I want to be the guy to take this off? That's a great question. And, you know, like you said, pieces of the story have been done and they've been done so well. You know, Norman Mailer, David Remnick, uh, George Plimpton, you know, writers that I loved and admired and couldn't touch um, had, had already done those those pieces of the story. But nobody had done the big Ali book. Nobody had given him the, the like the presidential treatment, you know, the John Meacham, Walter Isaacson kind of book where you just tell why this man is one of the most important men of all time. Um, you know, the, the goat, obviously, but seriously, one of the most important lives of the 20th century. He deserved the big, fat, serious biography. And like you said, a lot of those people who knew him were still alive. You know, three out of his four wives were still alive. Um, you know, mo mo more than half of the guys he fought were still alive. Ali was still alive when I began working on this. So I thought, First of all, you have to wait a little while. Like you couldn't have written the definitive Ali biography in the 80s or the 90s. You got to let some time pass to see how he resonates across history about, you know, what kind of impact he had on, on, on the world, on culture, on sports, on race, on religion. Um, but here's somebody who clearly touched all of the most important issues of our time, who changed the world. But now 50 years have gone by since he became champ. And you can start to assess some of that and you can still talk to the people who knew him. So I felt like this is the sweet spot. It's the perfect time to do a big fat Ali biography. And it was nobody else was doing it. Why not me? What did you know about Muhammad Ali's life before you started? Because I know it was hours and hours, years of work and years of interviews. But going into it, what did you know about Ali? Uh, sit, but like when you said, I'm going to take this on. Going in, I'm a fanboy. You know, I had read Remnick. I had read Mailer. I had read Plimpton. And, and I and I loved Ali. I grew up, I was born in 64. So I can remember his his fights after the uh, the exile. I can remember Ali Frazier and Ali Foreman. I remember those fights as kids, watching them when they were aired. You know, I couldn't w watch them live because they were only on closed circuit. My parents mm -hmm. wouldn't let me out of the house at midnight to go down to, to the movie theater to watch it. Uh, but I could watch it the next week when it showed up on Wild, Wild World of Sports mm -hmm. or something. So Ali was a huge figure in my life. Everybody talked about those fights for weeks leading up to them, bigger than any Super Bowl, bigger than any World Series. Yeah. Um, and way bigger than, than the NBA championship back then in the 70s. We're talking about the, the biggest sports figure in the world, on the planet. And, um, you know, I just, so, but I, did, I was not an expert. Um, you know, I couldn't name more than, you know, uh, you know, maybe 10 or 12 of his fights. Um, I had to learn a lot from scratch. I had to really pretend that I was coming into it cold as if I, you know, was, was taking the beginner's class in the beginning. And then I had to become, you know, the world's leading expert on this man's life. And I've, I, I discovered things about Ali that Ali didn't know about himself. That is, you make a great point. I believe it was about Ali's grandfather. Was it? 
yeah, that right. Was something you had said that that Ali didn't even know. You just knew he kind of had been uh, he had been in prison, but he didn't know reasons why. And you found out about his lineage. You found out uh, things are, are unearthed things about, especially about his family and his upbringing that people didn't know. Um, what are some of the things that you learned during this process that surprised you, and obviously surprised those that were close to him? Well, the one thing you just mentioned, you know, I discovered that Ali's grandfather was convicted of murder and I, I got the court transcripts. I got the trial transcripts and sent him to Ali and to his wow. wife. And Ali um, was 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 sick at that point. Uh, but uh, but his wife you know, told me that he she passed it along and explained it to him. Um, and then I discovered that his great, great, great grandfather had actually been a, an escaped slave and a hero who had helped the Union. Um, by providing information on the movement of, um, of Confederate troops. So Ali comes from greatness. You know, he comes from, he comes from greatness and from, from, uh, from, 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 you know, has with this dark side of having a grandfather who was convicted of murderer. Um, so, you know, when he said he, he knew he was the greatest, he had that lineage. He had, you know, he had, uh, you know, historic bloodlines. There's a statue of his great, great, great grandfather in Washington, D.C., actually. And Ali didn't know that was his great, great, great grandfather. So that's, that's just, you know, one little example. There's so many things that, you know, come across four years of research. You know, I even counted the number of punches he was hit with in mm-hmm. the course of his career. So all the kinds of things from big to the little. I'm um, sure I'm yeah. sure he would dispute that. <laughs> yeah, well, said. he would say he was never hit. Right, he's never hit. Never hit at all. <laughs> that. But that that's amazing because every piece of, you know, every book, you know, you mentioned every documentary, you tend to learn something new Um, or you might have heard something, but you put it in a different perspective once you have more kind of knowledge, more understanding, more information base um, to apply what like, oh, this is what was happening when he did this or this was what happening when he did this. I could start anywhere. I'm going to ask you, where did you start? So I, I ask you why you wanted to do it and what, you know, what kind of gave you the, the, you know, the ability and, and, and kind of mental makeup to start. But when you were like, okay, I'm going to do this. Who's the first person you talk to? Like, where do you start? For me, it was pretty obvious. Khalila Ali. Mm. His second wife, his first mm-hmm. wife had passed away before I began, Sanji, Roy. Mm-hmm. But Khalila Ali, who's Belinda at the time she married him, so 17 years old when she married Ali. Um, I figured, first of all, the women never got to tell their side of the story over the years. You know, all those great books I talked about, the women never. are barely mentioned and barely. they're certainly not interviewed. Um, and in part, they weren't interviewed because these were you know, white male sports writers who didn't really think about the black woman's perspective and they had access to Ali and they didn't want to blow that access to Ali by hearing what wives or ex-wives had to say. So one of the things I realized early on is that, um, you know, Ali had three wives who were still with us, um, one he was still married to, and that they were super important, that their voices deserved to be heard. And they were living witnesses who not only saw what went on in the ring, but saw the man and, and knew what his what his idiosyncrasies were, knew what his flaws were, and that if I could gain their trust and convince them that their voices needed to be heard, that their stories needed to be told, that I would do something that no other Ali um, biographers had ever done. Even the, um, you know, the big Thomas Hauser book, which mm-hmm. was an oral history of Ali's life that was published in the 90s, um, his ex-wives were not uh, were not invited to participate Is in that. Is that book. right? No, oh, because wow. um, 
you know, that was an authorized book and Ali was calling the shots and he didn't want the ex-wives. Sanji was interviewed for that book, I believe, but um, no, maybe not. No, no, I don't think she was. I think uh, Lonnie was the only one who was interviewed for that book because she was still married to Ali. That is amazing. And so starting, starting there um, and then moving on, there's so many ways that we can go with a, with an Ali conversation. Let, and, and so I want to, because there's what happens in the ring, which is such compelling theater, and you capture it so well uh, in regards to actually the fight. Like, what's, you know, one of the obviously most strategic boxers, one of the most smartest kind of strategists in regards to actually in the fight, right? One that was younger in his career, all the natural talent in the world, a lot of bad form, a lot of bad, bad technique to... Uh, as he's gotten older, he literally has to outthink opponents if he's going to survive at the time 15 rounds of just wars, right? Um, but then there's all of this stuff that was a part of Ali's life outside of the ring. Um, and oftentimes, the stuff that you see outside the ring just, uh, uh, what's the best way to, to frame it? Just a lot of contradictions and is in, in the overall life that was like captivated by this just amazing, charming, lovable, mag, mag, you know, a magnet of a man that everybody wants to be around. What did you find the most interesting? Because you, you've written books about sports and I know you enjoy sports. And obviously there's all of this compelling stuff, you know, compelling drama and comedy and tragedy outside of the ring as well. When, when you took on this challenge, what did you find the most industry, the stuff that happened in the ring or, or outside the ring? Well, well, in the ring is, is in some ways the easiest because you can watch it and you can see what's going on. And, and it's so much fun to describe. You know, I look forward to every fight when it comes along and I, you know, I have to really restrict myself not to tell you every round and every blow because it's so much fun to describe the stuff in the ring. Um, but it's the stuff outside the ring that's much harder to, sure. to deal with. And, and that's, uh, this, Ali's one of the most complicated, everybody's complicated. You and I are complicated, right? If I were to dive into my own life and to tell you, you know, how I feel and how I act and how those, the gaps between what I'm supposed to do and what I do, you know, we all fought, we all have our flaws and, and we, uh, but Ali was the most complicated guy I've ever written about. Um, he's this seeming narcissist in many ways, you know, he's, He's, it's all about himself and everything he does, he thinks it's going to turn out fine. And he reminded me of Trump in some ways, like, mm. you know, me, me, me. Um, and, and yet, unlike Trump, he really cared about other people, really loved other people, had this great sense of humor. Um, and in some ways, the most egotistical man I've ever come across was also really modest in a way, like never believed he was truly better than anybody else. You know, he, he would spend time with with the lowest of the low you know the, the the chambermaid in his hotel who was cleaning the room he was just as interested in their life as he was in in talking to presidents or, or prime ministers you know he was just fascinating in that way talk to me about because you're you're exactly right um talk to me about his career one of the things that i don't think is talked about enough actually is the transitional period between what is the Louisville group and the nation of Islam. And so there's, there's this interesting group, right. Of Ali backers, mostly white males 
that that fun the early part of his career at the very least and really for all case in point um financially i i I haven't read otherwise seem to have done right by him for the most part um but obviously he grows more understands more of his religion his spirituality um joins the nation of islam and then once he joins the nation of islam there's the louisville group there's angelo dundee there's folks like Bob Arum, right? And so what did you find? Because I, I've never really, I, I just know that Ali had this protective thing where it was like, don't mess with Dundee. You know what I mean? Like you get, certain people are going to do right by me. That's fine. But what was that? Tra- what, what did you learn about that kind of interesting time period where he's coming into the, the nation, he's announcing after he wins the title that he's in the nation, but he has like all of these kind of, other areas that he either has to deal with or ignore right yeah this is so interesting i'm glad you brought this up because this gets back to ali's complexity how he's able to like embrace um subtlety and and conflict like he's he's joining the nation of islam he's which says that all white people are devils and yet he's got this louisville sponsoring group as you mentioned all white all male not just that but very conservative leaders of industry. These are people who kind of view him like they view their racehorses at at, at the Kentucky Derby. Like, well, if we own this boxer, we get front row seats to his fights. And yet Ali, they treat Ali very well. He's got a better contract and makes out financially better than any boxer in history. He's getting an annual salary. Mm. All of his expenses paid, plus a trust fund being established to make sure he'll have something when he retires from boxing. And these guys are really not interested in making a lot of money themselves. They're doing this because it's like a issue of civic pride. And even after Ali joins the Nation of Islam, and even after he begins following um, Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X and saying that white society is going to be destroyed and, and, and you know a spaceship is going to come down and destroy all white people, only black mm-hmm. people will survive. And even after he fires the, the Louisville sponsoring group, he still comes back, comes back for these kids' birthday parties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the, the, his, mm-hmm. when, when he finds out one of these guys from the Louisville sponsoring group has had a heart attack, he drops everything and rushes to the hospital, flies across the country. So that's what I'm talking about. This guy loves people. And he's got on one hand this really radical philosophy about how he views race. And yet that does not stop him from being able to care about and, and appreciate these very conservative white businessmen in Louisville. It's just, I love that complexity. I love it's that so somebody strange. can 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 embrace both worlds and both sets of ideas. It's it's so strange. And and, and tell me about the Dundee relationship, the Angelo Dundee relationship, because it it seems as if um, the you know when, when the Nation of Islam was able kind of to influence his business. Herbert Muhammad's his manager. There's a, a like there were parts that obviously you know about this where it's like he wasn't even taking the drinking water because he was like somebody could be doing something to me yet no one could mess with Angelo Dundee right is that and Angelo for all case and points from what I understand was not a fan of the nation being around wasn't a fan of Malcolm X being around he just thought it was too much of a uh, distraction if anything could be more sinister. you might know you will definitely know more but it could have been more I don't know much about his personal uh you know, background and kind of Angela Dundee's thoughts, but I knew he kind of viewed this as something that wasn't good to be around Ali, right? Uh, but yet, uh, Angela Dundee was untouchable, right, in Ali's eyes? Absolutely, because he was 
the trainer who really understood Ali. He was, and, and Ali, you know, never forgot that this guy believed in him all along. And they had this very deep psychological, really amazing working relationship where Dundee appreciated that Ali was not somebody you could tell what to do. And you had to just give him suggestions for, for, for what to do. And, you know, Ali would go into the ring um, with, and Dundee would have no idea what the strategy for the fight was. He didn't have to know. And, 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 uh, and he gave Ali the room that he needed to, to be himself. If you tried to train Ali in too specific a way, you might lose the magic because he was an idiosyncratic fighter. He did not fight with proper style, with proper technique. Um, the whole idea later in his career, when he starts trying this rope-a-dope thing, I mean, no boxing trainer would, would ever encourage a fighter to, to let himself be hit. Um, it, was, it was a terrible strategy. Um, it only worked for Ali, and it only worked a couple of times. But um, it worked because Ali believed in it, and, and Dundee uh, really had no say in the matter. And, and, you know, it's worth remembering that Ali had a bunch of people in his entourage. Most of them were not Muslims. Most of them were, were people who thought the, the Nation of Islam was, was, was crazy. Um, you know, Pacheco, uh, even, even, um, Bundini, um, Bundini Brown was, sure. was, you know, it was harsh when it came to criticizing the nation of Islam. So Ali was able to recognize that these people loved him and cared about him and they didn't have to agree on religion for him to, to, to work with and to, and to, to live with. I mean, these were his close, these were practically family for him. And that, in that relationship, um, really was one that like it could be its own it could, it, i mean i think it is its own movie and it's its own book in regards to uh muhammad ali uh then at the time malcolm x um you know the honorable Elijah muhammad um uh, and that just dynamic right um really really i don't think it can be overstated how tense that time period was the time period, uh, especially after he wins the title, it always blows my mind. Ali wins the title in what February '64, and it's March of '65 um, where then Malcolm X was assassinated. Right? Very, very tense time period, obviously in the country, but obviously within the nation of Islam. And these two very, very powerful folks, obviously uh, one being much more powerful than the other inside the nation, um, are, are are almost kind of they both obviously have great love and, and reference for Ali, but they're also kind of using his position as almost like a pawn's not the right word. I don't you probably John have a better word than I do, but they're both trying to use Ali as leverage, right? How, yeah. How, how did he go? How did Ali go about navigating what seems to be at the, at the time I think most people would say kind of Malcolm's last play to get back in the good graces of Muhammad Ali. I mean, of Elijah Muhammad. Yeah, this is so perilous and, and, and tense, as you said. Um, and there's a good book about it, Blood Brothers, um, about the Ali-Malcolm relationship. Uh, but it, it, it's, a, it's a struggle for survival and a struggle for the soul of the nation of Islam and, and really a struggle for what's to become of, of the Muslim world in America because... Um, you know, this is all being shaped at the time, and, and Malcolm is challenging Elijah Muhammad for for control, for leadership, and and um, you know Elijah's sees Al sees Ali as a pawn. It may be the right word for it. That that whoever gets Ali is going to have a huge advantage in terms of uh, attracting the public to their side, 
And that's why uh, Elijah Muhammad offers him this name. You know, Ali might, it looks like he might be going with Malcolm. Right. The name thing is a, it's a, it's something that I think a lot of casual layman Ali fans really overlook about the mm-hmm. timing of the name and what it meant. And it was almost right. Correct me if I'm wrong. It was kind of the final thing where, where Malcolm was Malcolm understood like, yeah, this isn't going to work. Like this is yeah, in a way it's kind of like a, a marriage proposal, you know, um, looks like Ali might be marrying Malcolm. Right. And he actually announces that he's going to change his name to Cassius X. And then he gets a call from Elijah Muhammad saying, guess what? I've decided that um, you're going to marry me. I'm giving you a special name and a, a true honor that only the highest people in the nation of Islam receive. You're going to receive a, a first name and a last name. You will not be Cash X. You will be Muhammad Ali and you will be my son. Uh, and Ali can't say no, uh, no. To, a, to an offer like that. And when Malcolm hears on the radio that, Cassius Clay is, has been um, has accepted this new name, and he'll be now known as Muhammad Ali. Um, Malcolm knows it's over. He knows he's been outflanked. There is your book does this well, but there is a person of all the people in Muhammad Ali's orbit. There, and you mentioned in in, in this interview that I really didn't think about until you put it in perspective about. Um, his 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 wives uh, not having their voices really really kind of seeked out and told someone that is I think is ubiquitous in all of these stories but you never hear from as much as his brother Muhammad Ali's brother is with him every like the pictures the things that you're like oh there's 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 Malcolm X or there's Howard Bingham there's there's Bundini his brother uh he called him Rudy, and then he changed. He uh, joined the nation, changed his name as well. Is always there through his entire life, and and I've never really, you know, been able. Is there a reason we don't hear from his brother, who's literally was with him every step of the way, right? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, I I joked about it because I helped make the the Ken Burns documentary on Ali, and I said, let's count how many times Rachman appears in this documentary. He's in every picture. He's standing next to or behind Ali in every photo. He travels with him everywhere. He's in, you know, he's a bigger part of Ali's life than, um, you know, than, than, than some of his wives. And yet you never hear from him. Was there a reason behind that? Like, cause I've noticed that. I was just like, uh, in part, it's because he's so loyal to Ali that he would never talk out of school. Okay. He would never say anything that, you know, that, that, would hurt Ali or would stir up controversy. He was a really humble guy. And I think people just kind of overlooked him all those years. Um, Nobody ever wrote a story about him. Nobody ever interviewed him back in the day. I spent some time with him. I visited him three or four times in Louisville. He's he's still alive. um, We got him on, on film for the Ken Burns documentary. Um, And he, and he's a sweet, sweet man. Um, But um, yeah, totally overlooked over the course of history. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Cheats Movement Podcast. It's on the Family Podcast Network. Make sure you visit thefamilypn.com and subscribe. We are talking to a Muhammad Ali expert. That's the only way you can call it now, the Muhammad Ali expert. Uh, John, you've done years. You said, what, four years of research? Well over, you stopped counting, but well over 600 uh, interviews. Right. 
who are some of the like I'm sure there's aha moments in just about every interview, but of of the people you talk to that you were like, man, this is this is amazing stuff. Like this is just like paradigm shifting stuff. Uh that are still that, that that you got in person with for this book. Who who are some of the folks that you spoke to that really just the book would not have obviously you mentioned the wives, but the book would not have been the same without without these conversations. Oh man, yeah, there's so many the wives for sure, the children, um Gene Kilroy, who was Ali's business manager and, and, and was there for you know every step of the way. And he helped me tremendously, helped me get me in touch with other people who who, I, who got to talk to, George Foreman, uh, Larry Holmes. But probably my favorite interview was Don King. And, and, he, uh, and I've, I've, I've heard that this was not an easy interview to get. You had to track. <laughs> I saw no, in yeah. your other interviews, you had to track Don King all across all across the country, which to me seems odd because it seems like Don King hasn't seen a microphone he doesn't like. Right. I know. I was so surprised, but I kept calling him up. I had a cell phone and I'd call him up and he'd say, sorry, brother, I'm I'm busy. I'm, I'm, I'm working on the Middle East peace right now. <laughs> or uh, <laughs> he always had something big going on and I wasn't important enough for him. So I tracked him down a couple of times and just went where he was. And um, he still wouldn't talk to me. And, and you know, really? some people asked, some people wanted money for interviews and I wouldn't pay. And that was an impediment. It took me a while to get over that. Don never asked for money, which was kind of surprising given yeah. his, his, his business um, business he's in, but he just didn't have the time of day for me. And then finally I tracked him down to Easton, Pennsylvania. He was there for a Larry Holmes uh, statue dedication. I, I followed him around for two, <laughs> wait three a days. Second, wait a second, what? Yeah, <laughs> Larry like, Holmes I, has a statue. I know, so at some point, I'm surprised like Larry Holmes even talks to Don King at this point. I don't, I yeah, guess right. Made up. <laughs> like, how, <laughs> how is that happen? possible, right? Right? How does anybody who, who <laughs> fought for insane. Don King still speak to him, right? Oh, okay, um, go I'm so, sorry, the, so I finally get him in the corner, and he finally says, okay, fine, I'll sit and talk to you. And then I started thinking, because I've been around him, I've heard him interviewed a million times. He always does the same same shtick, right? Uh, only in America, blah blah blah. Like, how are you going to get this guy to say something different? How are you going to get him to answer honestly? And I spent all day thinking about what what's my first question going to be? Because if it's a bad question, he's so, just going to go into his routine, and and that routine everybody's heard. So I so I sat down next to him and I stuck my tape recorder under his chin, and I said, "Don, Nation of Islam, Mafia." hundreds of boxers you, 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 you ripped off over the years. How come you're still alive? And he loved that question. <laughs> he liked it. He, that was, he loved that it. That was the one that got him. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. He loved it. What, uh, what did he say? He said, cash is king, baby. And, and king <laughs> is cash. And, but he said, the reason I'm still alive is that before I began, when I, you know, I, I, I had Ali on the hooks, I, I went to Elijah Muhammad and I said, you're letting white people make all this money sure. off of Muhammad Ali. You need to let a brother get a piece of this action. And I'm going to take care of him in a way that no white promoter ever will or ever could. And I'd even consider joining the Nation of Islam because I believe in much of what you're saying about empowering black people. If it wasn't for the thing about pork. <laughs> oh, geez. And he said, listen, if I can give you some advice, um, uh, Elijah Muhammad, um, just get rid of that pork ban and your and your membership will go through the roof. You, I'm you sure get a lot said, more. this is amazing. <laughs> oh and, man, uh, that's a and, and he talked to me like after after that he said to me, you know, you're you're okay, you know what? And I could tell I learned the thing I figured out about Don from that time together is that he actually 
likes to talk and he and he's a good mm-hmm. listener. You just got to get him out of his routine. And and I called him the next day and said, I just wanted to thank you for the conversation. And he said, Well, you know, I enjoyed it. Why don't you why don't you come to my house? Uh, we're having a Christmas party um, later in the week. And uh, and he invited me to his to his family Christmas party, which I went to. It took my my little girls to, uh, which was like That's one amazing. of the most uh, incredible experiences of my life. How much of the uh, kind of Don now Don King's his own entity, but how much of like the 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 animosity between Aram and and King? How how much of it? I know it was real, but how real was? Because these are two guys. Just to be frank, at the time, these are two guys you don't mess with. You don't mess yeah. with Don King. Obviously, you don't mess with Bob Aram. You don't mess with the Nation of Islam, right? The FBI is probably tracking all of this. Or not probably, it's documented now. The FBI is tracking all of this. How, yep. what, was, what was the dynamic between Bob Aram, Don King, the Nation, and Ali himself? It's amazing that all these people managed somehow to get anything done together. Because Aram and King still don't to this like day, each other, as you can imagine. Yeah, they're, they're not getting along. And they they both uh, didn't like Herbert Muhammad, who was managing Ali. Uh, you know, that's one of the things I loved about this book. You've got all of these massive egos, and Ali is such a big star. He's the sun around which even these massive egos can revolve, right? His wow. gravitational pull is so strong that they're all willing to behave or at least like somehow not kill each other because they all see Ali and, and, and they all want to, of course, they all want to make money off of Ali. That's a big part of it, too. And it's and it's and it's funny because you say all of this and what we all know, especially at that time, probably still to this day, is 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 a pretty corrupt industry, right? Like this is an industry that was mafia ran, mob ran before this, and it was it's it's really interesting. Um, I know I've got to, we've got so much to talk about, and I want to jump I want to jump to one you had mentioned um, while you were doing the book. Obviously, uh, uh, I think Howard Bryant, the uh, the sports writer. Um, who's done a lot of biographies um, and is doing another great one now um, said, said in an interview sometime where it's like, if there doesn't come a, a point where you don't hate your subject, you're probably not doing it right. You'd mentioned um, there was a part of the riff, uh, I guess that kind of the, the final straws between uh, Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X that, that really made you personally, it was like, ah, oh, you know, I wish he would wish it hadn't gone that direction. Um, when I always look back at the the life and the career of Muhammad Ali, I look back to the three Fraser, the Joe Frazier fights, and I look at an Ali that really, like Joe Frazier, probably to the to his death grave had couldn't get over it to an extent. He, he says he got over it, and, and so, but there's probably parts of Joe Frazier that still hold a lot of contempt for Muhammad Ali, even even when he passed. And my, I look at it, and I was like, I can't blame him. It just seems so out of character. Not necessarily. It just seemed more personal and actually more mean through the three Fraser fights of, of what they did. And was, uh, do you look back at, at the, mostly, I guess, the lead up to promote those fights, but because it always seemed to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, where it was like Ali would go above and beyond to promote the fight. And, and probably go just way too far. And he, and he did cut personal and cut deep. But Frazier just wasn't that type of guy. And so did, did you ever look back at those lead-ups to those fights and was just like, this this one's tough. Like, it was that seems to be the worst. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, what Howard Bryant said is absolutely true, that if you're getting deep into somebody's life, you're going to have moments where you just feel like they really let you down. And there were there were really three areas in which Ali let me down. And one was treat, his treatment of women. Uh, the other was his turning his back on Malcolm, when I believe he could have saved Malcolm's life. And then the way he treated his friend, Joe Frazier. Uh, Joe Frazier truly was a friend. Um, you know, Ali had a lot of fans. He had a lot of supporters. He had a lot of people in his entourage who loved him, but just friends like equals friends that you, you know, you weren't the boss of Joe Frazier was one of them. You know, Frazier really cared about Ali when Ali was banned from boxing. Frazier looked after him and took care of him and visited him, hung out with him. And Ali forgot all about that when it came to time to fight him. And, you know, part of Ali's the entertainer. He thinks this is funny. This is how you sell tickets, but he had, he was not, a stupid man he had to realize that he was hurting this guy and you know again like the narcissism comes into play here maybe that just doesn't register in his brain like he doesn't think that anyone's going to take this personally and he, he can't really feel what Frazier's feeling but it gets so personal it gets so racist and he's using some of the worst racist tropes that you know white sure. segregationists the most racist white men in america would use to 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 to, to hurt black people he's using the same words and he, and he doesn't seem to be aware of the, the effect of that, or, or even just the effect that it has on other black people hearing these words, um, or that it might even authorize white people to feel like they can use those words too, right? Or what it means for Joe Frazier's kids. He's not thinking about any of this, and nobody in his entourage has the guts to stop. say to him, stop. Hmm. And that's infuriating to me. Did he, now, he's obviously much later in life, said the Malcolm, uh, you know, that part of his life he he, he kind of regret or he regretted uh did, did he ever show any kind of regret or remorse to the to the fraser stuff not really like you know there are different levels of apology i think yeah. you know to apologize is one thing to atone for your for your for your sins is another and he never atoned he never tried to make it right he might have a couple of times said oh well me and joe we were pals we were just fooling around and i didn't mean to hurt his feelings but that's not the same as a, a genuine apology in my book. As, as far as a fighter, there's obviously the Frazier fights, the Sonny Liston fights, even the George Foreman fights. You know what gets lost to me is the Ken Norton fights. Yeah. The Ken Norton fights were wars. Wars. And yeah. there's, a, uh, there's a mini doc about the uh, Yankee Stadium Ken Norton fight where it was like the police were on strike and it really was just, it, it, it was a dangerous scene out there. <laughs> um, and uh, Ali wins the decision, very controversial decision. And there's a part of the, uh, the doc that says, Hey, look, I don't know. I don't know what was the background of those judges, but I do know if Ali had lost the fight and there would have been just riots, like riots <laughs> to the point and no, yeah. and no cops, right. Cause the cops were on strike. Obviously, he's had so many legendary fights, though, you know, we mentioned in legendary, um, uh, you know, just golden era of boxing and, and 15 rounds. But I, do you think because towards the end of the career is when those fights really started taking taking some toll on him? The Norton fights seem to be some of the most brutal. Is, is that is that right? Or Yeah, I think they were. Um, Ali, uh, first of all, wasn't training as hard at that stage in his career, you know, he lacked some of the, he'd lost some of the discipline. I think some of the blows to the head over the years took their toll on his desire and his ability to really train hard for these fights. And plus, you know, the richer and famous, more famous 
you get, the harder it is to really sure. push yourself in the training. And then tr- Norton just matched up stylistically really badly for Ali. You know, fighting is not always about who's the better fighter. It's about whose style gives you the most trouble. And, and Frazier, um, you know, Frazier got destroyed by George Foreman, but Frazier's style gave Ali fits. And, for, and, and Norton's style also gave Ali fits. And um, I think that's why, you know, he really surprised him in that first fight. I think Ali won the second fight, and I think he lost the third fight. I yeah. think the North, the New York fight. I think uh, I think Norton probably really deserved the decision on that one. Um, but those fights took a real toll. Obviously, not just a broken jaw, but by that point in his in his career, Ali's fighting you know terrific fighters. He's fighting long fights. Even mediocre opponents are taking him yep. sometimes the distance, and he's suffering a lot of damage um, to you know just just head trauma as a result of all these fights. And you can start to see it. You can start to see how he's, his speech is slowing and uh, he's starting to have, you know, memory issues and, and even some, some physical signs that something's wrong, you know, some twitching in the hands. And, you know, that's when, you know, you really start to wish that he would just call it quits every fight. You know, you feel like, okay, make that, the, let's make that the last one. And it's, that was really hard for me. And it, it mostly after every fight, didn't he say, well, this is it for me. This, yeah. This yeah. Is it. And then they would, they would, and somebody would say, Well, how about, how about a million dollars to fight Trevor Burbank? Okay, sure. Let's move forward to the, to the, John, I really, really love your time and I really am appreciative of it. And I'm having a lot of fun as well. And let's talk about kind of now as we see the legacy of Muhammad Ali. And it is, you know, all over culture, all over American culture. uh, Everybody, kind of knows him now as the goat you can't really say even the word greatest of all time without without saying Muhammad Ali but there is a real shift right and real love and real respect for all that Ali has done not like you said not just in the ring but the courage to be the heavyweight champion of the world and say he's a member of the nation of Islam and and I'm gonna be you know I'm gonna be a represent a champion the way I want to be the champion um Obviously, there's anti-war stance in Vietnam. Looking back on it, hindsight's 2020. He he was right. You know, there were there were there was in his courage at the time. Uh, so we look back on this life and legacy and things that are still going, and everybody seems to, from President of the United States, would say Muhammad Ali is just great human being, great humanitarian, um, and that wasn't always the case. Obviously, as we're living through it um i think you mentioned possibly 1996 in the atlanta olympic games as a real turning point but are you in many ways surprised about how american culture and the world and global culture views muhammad ali today after going through his entire life and career uh, is it surprising to you that, you know, it's it's Muhammad Ali and Nelson Mandela and Barack Obama and these are yeah. all like, is, is, it, is it surprising at all? Um, it's not really surprising to me. Um, the evolution of it has been interesting. And in some ways, I think it's actually getting better. For a while, I was really concerned about it. And Stanley Crouch, the great writer, said there, that, that Ali, there were three Ali's the, when, when Ali was young. He was he was a grizzly bear. He was ferocious. He was out of control. He was dangerous. And then Ali in like the 70s becomes more like a circus bear. He's still dangerous, um, but, you know, he's he's there to entertain us mostly. And then the last act after the Olympic torch in the 90s, he becomes a teddy bear. 
and we all just want to hug him. And, 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 and that was, that troubled me because, you know, if you, if you treat Ali as a saint, as a the Dalai Lama, um, he becomes meaningless in a way. You forget that he was a fighter, that he was fighting for, for racial justice, that he was fighting against war and that he was hated by the majority of white Americans for most of his, of his active career. Um, and we need to remember that, but I do think now that he's become this icon of, of the civil of, of the of the movement, Black Lives Matter. Uh, these athletes taking a stand and refusing to play after George Floyd. You know, you see the, the LeBron. You see the Milwaukee Bucks refusing to take to the court. You see, you know, people like Colin Kaepernick invoking his image. And Ali has become, in many ways, much more than a teddy bear. Now he's he's a reminder that shut up and dribble is not something we have to accept. You know, that's what they told him. Shut up and fight. You know, be grateful for what white society has given you this chance to be a, a millionaire. No, you know, that doesn't mean we're going to keep our mouths shut. And I think Ali in some ways is is getting his his voice back and he's not just a teddy bear anymore. That's an interesting um, I, I think you're exactly right. I think it's an interesting perspective. Um, I do wonder when you're doing your interviews, because like you say, even with the uh, approach of Don King, it's like, I've got to get some honesty and some truth out of it. Um, because I'm assuming when you start your project at the time that you started it a couple of years ago, it was still in a looking back and saying, you know, everybody's going to want to say great things about Ali, especially early on. Um, the George Foreman conversations, or like you said, the, you know, some of the, some of the folks that really had some, some, some real hard resentment. Was it still, was it, was it, did you have to like, I guess, massage the conversation to get how they were truly feeling or did they, because I'm assuming most people that come into the, the conversation with you, especially initially wanting just to say positive glowing things. Yeah. And that's fun part for me is, you know, getting people to get past like their, their boilerplate stuff. And, and these fighters, you know, you got to realize that they're fighters. They never stop feeling that, that sense of competition. And every one of them, if you spend enough time with them, George Foreman will say, oh, Ali was the greatest. I learned so much from him. He taught the world about love and peace, but, but you know, damn it, I, I beat him. You know, I, I was cheated <laughs> out of that fight. And, 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 and Larry Holmes will say, he's a stupid mother. You know, oh. you don't let yourself get hit like that. After a while, you get you, these guys loosen up. And, you know, Larry Holmes will say, I loved Ali. You know, he was like a father to me. He's like a big brother to me, but man, what a stupid fool to take all those punches. And I, you know, I, I hated to have to fight him. I hated to have to do that damage to him, but it, he deserved it because you know, he should have known when to quit. That, I mean, I, I could, I could only imagine. I could only imagine. Um, John, let me ask you about, about not necessarily the life of Ali, but actually what the aftermath of you publishing something of this magnitude sculpt nature We've we briefly talked about all the accolades and they're all well deserved. It's an amazing book and you it well deserved uh, on all the accolades that you got. What's you mentioned Don King's birthday, uh, <laughs> Don King's birth. What's some of the coolest things that have happened after you've published the book? And because it's I'm assuming there's uh, obviously a comp, uh, accomplished author. You've done you've done some some really really good like award winning stuff. But now you've dropped the definitive Muhammad Ali book does does the world change for you in a sense uh in regards to just even doing something as as interesting as maybe going to going to a fight or going to the boxing hall of fame and it's like every, is it different for you now um not really I I, I go back to work 
<laughs> and start on the next project. But, you know, I have to say, it's an ama- amazing honor just to see my name linked to Muhammad Ali's. Sure. You know, we were we were together in a Jeopardy question. Like, my name appeared in a Jeopardy question. That was not because of me. Like, I'm not famous, <laughs> but it's because I wrote a book about Muhammad Ali. So, That's cool. like, the fact that somehow for many, many years, long after I'm gone, you know, I'll be linked to him is just one of the great thrills and like accomplishments. I could, I could never have dreamed of that as a kid that I would someday be in that position. So, you know, it's interesting because not everybody liked the book, you know, for family members, some of it was hard to read. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew that going in that these, especially the women who, who trusted me to tell the story, it was going to be hard for them to read because it's painful to read about his, his, you know, his, the way he cheated on his women, on the wives. And it's painful to read about you know, the, the blows to the head and, and, and the effects it took over the years and the bad decisions he made. Um, and I have a responsibility to tell the whole story and not sugarcoat it. And sometimes that leads people who I got to know and trust and love really well, who um, were part of my life, um, didn't always love the book. And that's, that's hard for me. But I like to think that, you know, I'm helping people to understand the real Ali and that um, that's, you know, it's worth, worth um, whatever comes my way. John, I'm going to ask you, before we get you out of here, I'm going to ask you about going backwards before Ali, and then I'm going to ask you going forward, because I know you're working on some you, you, some very interesting, compelling stuff uh, now that hasn't been released yet. Um, but going backwards, I would be remiss if I don't ask you about Jackie Robinson. I'm a huge baseball fan, huge Negro League fan in that sense. I know Robinson, Kansas City Monarchs, before they they, they make him the, the individual to break the, the Major League Baseball color barrier, your book. Um, chronicles the first year of Jackie Robinson's Major League Baseball career. Is that right? Well, yeah. Talk to me about just um, Jackie Robinson, that process of writing that book. And, it, and if possible, was this process different or very similar to writing about Ali's? The Jackie book was really interesting for me because it relied so heavily on one person to tell that story. And that was Mrs. Robinson, Rachel Robinson. And it began with a conversation I had with her where I wanted to know more about the relationship between her husband and Pee Wee Reese. Um, You know, so much had been written about their friendship and about this moment in 1947 when Pee Wee supposedly put his arm around Jackie Robinson and and silenced this this crowd of racist (laughs) hecklers. Did that happen? It's in the movie. (laughs) And right, it's in the movie. There's a statue. It's in every children's book. And Rachel Robinson says, well, you know, it didn't happen. And I said, what are you talking no, about? It didn't happen. No. I, said, I said, you were at the statue dedication. And she said, yeah, well, you know, sometimes you just got to go along with things. Oh. And she said, and this is what got, gave me the idea for the book. She said, in 1947, Pee Wee was not going to go out on a limb for us because everybody believed that this experiment was going to fail. Mm-hmm. We didn't even have our own apartment. We were renting a room from a complete stranger because we thought we might be there for a week or two. We did not know if this was going to work. And that's when I realized that the story was that an experiment that you've got this young couple with a baby renting a a eight by 10 room. They don't have their own bathroom. They don't have their own kitchen. And at any moment, this thing could crash and burn. And I wanted to know what it was like to be in that room, that eight by 10 room. And I, that was where my vision for this book began. Like if I could show you in one season, how not just baseball, but the whole world changes and you can see it through the eyes of this journey of this young married couple from LA arriving in Brooklyn and Jackie being the only Negro, as they called it then in a, in a league of 400 white men, um, what that was like for him and what was that like for his family, then I'd have a, you know, a hell of a story. That's amazing. That's amazing. 
Um, well, after, so <laughs> I, we were joking about this off the air, but Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, you're, you're not taking light, light topics here. And you just told me you, you just turned in a book and this was, uh, it'll be published sometime next year. And it's on the, the life of Martin Luther King Jr.? Yeah, just a just really easy one. <laughs> I'm John, taking all the easiest. John, subjects. what do you what do you do to yourself, John? What do you I know, do it, to yourself? This was five years. This book, and um, you know what, what happened was I'm researching the meetings between Ali and King, mm-hmm. and I wanted to know you know how many times they met, where and when, and I realized that the last biography of Martin Luther King, to me, the greatest American ever born, the last biography was 35 years ago. That's five years ago. Now it's 40 years mm-hmm. since the last Martin Luther King biography was published. And like I said about Ali, there's still people alive who knew him and the clock is ticking. You know, how much more time am I going to have to interview these folks? I could be, this could be the last opportunity to write a King biography where you can interview his sister, where you can interview Andrew Young, you can interview his childhood friends. Um, You can interview Jesse Jackson, James Lawson, Bernard Lafayette, you know? So I just started making the rounds. I don't know if if they're going to let me write this book. I don't know if I'm going to get a contract for it. I just started making the rounds, interviewing as many of those people as I could, as quick as I could. And I got, I found more than a hundred people who knew King and I interviewed, you know, more than a hundred people who knew King. Um, and it's been like the un- most unbelievable privilege of my life to, to, to spend some time and, and record their stories. That's amazing. Well, John, this has been a privilege of mine. Thank you so much for your time. Tell everybody, cause you're, look, don't get it. Don't, don't get it twisted. You're pretty quick on Twitter as well. And social medias tell everybody where they can find you, John. All right, Cheats. Uh, thanks. Uh, just check me out at Jonathan Ig on Twitter and jonathanig.com is my website. Buy some books, spread the, spread the love around, help me out. And, uh, and I'll be sure and, and tell folks about this podcast because I really enjoyed talking to you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Cheats Movement uh, on the Family Podcast Network. We'll be right back after this. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. I want to thank Jonathan for his time. Please go follow him on all of his social media, follow his projects, buy his books. Obviously, Jonathan is an amazing, amazing author. He's also uh, a wonderful person. So the book is Ali, A Life. Make sure you check that out. And then check out some of Jonathan's other amazing work as well. He's got a great book on the first season of Jackie Robinson. And he's got an amazing book coming out next year. Uh, So be sure to check that out. This is the Cheats Movement podcast on the Family Podcast Network. Please, please go to thefamilypn.com. Subscribe. Keep up with the Family Network. Keep up with all of our great shows, not just the Cheats Movement podcast. Your support is critical to this endeavor, and we are very so appreciative. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, this is Cheats. We see it. Yeah, yo, yo, I'm trying to play living. Right, see you at the airport.